You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 22nd of February 2024 on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Coming up on today's programme... Brazil's hosting of the G20 gets underway with a meeting of foreign ministers. We'll head to Maryland to check in on this year's Conservative Political Action Conference. Why the Netherlands' former defence chief is speaking out against ditching green policies. And increasingly, I I realise that climate change is is becoming a, a major driver behind a lot of uncertainty in the world. And it's Thursday, which means Fernando Augusto Pacheco is here with the Global Countdown. Yes, indeed, Vinny. And today's going to be a special one. We'll look at some of the top music biopics, all of that. Plus, we'll get the latest business news too. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Vincent McAvinney. But first, to Brazil, which is playing host to this year's meetings of G20 nations, the first of which between foreign ministers is now underway, and they're certainly not short of topics between the Middle East, Ukraine, Taiwan and the climate crisis. Fiona McCauley is a professor of gender, peace and development at the University of Bradford. Fiona, thank you for joining us. Firstly, I've covered a few of these conferences and they are huge occasions. For anyone who hasn't been, how would you describe them? Well, you've got the uh, officials and their entourages, and then you've got all of the people around the outside trying to influence them. So you've got the official delegates, and then you've always got um, informal sessions, people wandering around the corridors, trying to get meetings with people. Uh, They are kind of very, as you say, very busy. They're kind of bun fights. And if you can manage to get the ear of a delegate and change their position on a topic, then as an NGO or an extra or an additional country that wasn't invited, you've done extremely well. So there's a lot of maneuvering and pushing and whatever decisions they come up with, the wording will have been hashed out probably overnight on the last day of the meeting and will have been subject to enormous discussion and debate. So every word in those final statements will have been very carefully chosen. And compared to smaller meetings, thinking of like a G7, where a lot has been decided in advance, at a G20, because there are so many nations, so many interested parties as well, there's actually a lot more debate that's had at these conferences, isn't there? Yes, I mean, you've got the European Union, you've got the African Union, you've got Latin American countries who may or may not agree with one another. You've got other configurations like BRICS countries, which is Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa. Again, not a united group of countries, despite the fact people refer to them as such. So there's a lot of positioning and repositioning going on. And as you said, there are very many divided interests. Um, And so it will be difficult to see common positions coming out of this actually on anything, particularly on climate change and on the global, um, you know, conflicts going on at the moment. Mm. And Brazil is this year's host nation. It's a big opportunity for the return President Lula. What's been his approach to the event? Because Modi really tried to make it sort of all about himself last year, didn't he? Well, Lula has a long track record as a global statesman. And during his previous presidencies from 2003 to 2010, he was possibly the the busiest uh, Brazilian president ever in terms of traveling the world, establishing um, connections with 
African countries, with Middle Eastern countries, particularly with China, which is a key trading partner. So Lula's position is not a personal one, although I think he knows what a good global statesman he is, even though he's now much older than he was. He's, his view is that Brazil should be a leading voice in international politics. And that's not just his view. This is something that Brazilians, the foreign ministry in Brazil, have felt for decades. And they have always been key in designing the international architecture. They were there at the birth of the United Nations. They give the opening speech at every General Assembly. So they kind of feel like Brazil should be specifically, he said recently, a protagonist of great influence in the world. So I think it's partly about positioning Brazil in that global conversation. Mm. And the first meeting of foreign ministers has been tense, with nations clashing with Russia over the suspected killing of Alexei Navalny uh, and the war in Ukraine. Is that dominating the conversation? What else are they debating? Well, there are two other things. I mean, certainly the the issues, the two big issues, you know, Russia, Ukraine and Israel, Gaza. I mean, clearly Brazil has taken a position very recently on the Israel question, um, you know, pulling out its, its envoys to, to Israel. On Russia, they have a much more ambiguous position, which is to say that they've kept the door open to talking to Putin. I'm not sure they really are ever going to influence them on Ukraine. So I think that those are one set of issues on which there are clear divisions. But I think the other one is going to be climate change. Climate change was not resolved at any of the recent um, COP conferences. Um, Brazil, again, would love to be a leader in that debate. But bear in mind that it also wants trade and economic growth. So whatever its leadership on, say, the Amazon rainforest, it's also going to want to be talking about oil. It has oil reserves and so forth. So I think those are the two big contentious areas. I think everybody can pretty much get together on, you know, oh, we need to reduce global poverty. Nobody disagrees with that, whereas they do disagree with the degree to which climate change needs to be tackled and at what speed and and how, particularly with oil-owning nations. So those are the two big ones, really. Mm. And when it comes to uh, Gaza, Brazil's foreign minister has criticised the paralysis of the UN Security Council uh, over the war. Are we likely to see any breakthroughs at discussions in um, Rio? Oh, I would love to think so, but I kind of doubt it. I think there'll be lots of Uh, regroupings around it. I mean, I think that we're in a very different position now than we were several months ago. And the fact that the South Africans, in a sense, broke ranks and took um, the case to the International Court of Justice to test the allegation of genocide, or at least to talk about genocide prevention, they are part of the BRICS, of course. Now, they have moved to use the international system to scrutinize, uh, you know, a fellow member, whereas I think Russia would not not want that at all in relation to their activity in Ukraine. So, there will be, I think there'll be some regroupings. And I think the dial has shifted. I think that that conversation on Gaza and the the limit to what is, you know, to legitimate self-defense for Israel against Hamas and where that crosses the boundary into a very, very well-respected international principle around the protection of civilians, the responsibility to protect, all of which Brazil was in the center of that debate a couple of decades ago. Uh, I think there'll be some re there'll be some maneuverings, but I don't know that we're going to come out of it with a clear position. 
possibly run one around a humanitarian ceasefire, but that's a kind of mm. a kind of a, a slight bit of a fudge for, for many. It's humanitarian protection, but not really calling for a ceasefire. I don't think there'll be a unified position. Mm. And finally, uh, Vladimir Putin has been persona non grata at, at the previous two G20 since his illegal invasion of uh, Ukraine in Indonesia and then in India. Do we think he's likely to attend this one or will he be sending Sergei Lavrov back again in November? Oh, good question. Because uh, a few months ago in the summer, uh, Lula rather unwisely said, oh, yeah, Putin can attend. We will not arrest him. And then there was a furore and he retracted that position. Now, bear in mind that Lula's position and that of Brazil is one of absolute adherence to international norms and legalities. So although he wants to be an influencer on Putin, he's also very well aware of the fact that If you make a claim to be a global leader, as Brazil is doing, then you must be part of that upholding of international norms. So I don't know. It'll be interesting. I think Putin may not come. But if he does, it will really test which way Lula and Brazil will want to jump on that question, because they have been pretty clear on the question of legalities. And bear in mind, you know, one of the topics for discussion at this summit, at this this meeting is reform of the United Nations and the Security Council. Brazil has been lobbying for a seat on that Security Council for decades now, and that's part of the discussion. So you can't be part of the global governance apparatus if you're not willing to adhere to those norms, and Brazil always has. So I think it's questionable as to whether Putin will turn up. Fiona McCauley, thank you. Now here's Sophie Monaghan-Coombs with today's other news headlines. Thanks, Vinny. Israel has intensified airstrikes on Rafah ahead of an expected ground offensive into the southern Gaza city. Meanwhile, the Israeli war cabinet member, Benny Gantz, has said there are promising early signs of progress on a new deal to release hostages held by Hamas militants. American lawmakers visiting Taipei have told the island's president-elect that Washington will continue to support Taiwan, regardless of who wins the 2024 US election. Beijing claims the self-governing island as its own and has condemned this week's visit by a bipartisan delegation. At least 23 people have died in Venezuela after an illegally run gold mine collapsed. Rescue teams have been flown in from Caracas to help search for survivors at the site, known as Boya Loca, in the jungles of the state of Bolivar. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Vinny. Thank you, Sophie. Conservative activists are gathering outside Washington this week for the annual Conservative Political Action Conference. Leading Republican figures, including Donald Trump, strategist Steve Bannon and South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem, are all expected to attend. In recent years, CPAC has been dominated by the MAGA wing of the GOP and the conference's vice presidential straw poll is being closely watched to see who might join Trump on the ticket. H.J. Mai will be attending at National Harbour in Maryland, the town not too far away from Washington, D.C., where CPAC is being held later today. H.J., thank you for joining us. Firstly, what's the mood like at CPAC this year? I mean, I think, like you said, uh, I mean, this this has really turned into a, a mega event. Um, you know, Donald Trump is the, the, the figure that everybody looks to. Everybody's waiting for his speech on Saturday. Um, so I think, you know, the, the mood going into it is everybody who attends this event, um, you know, thinks Donald Trump will be the nominee for the Republican Party. And this is just almost like his coronation. I mean, everybody will listen to him. Everybody tries to make a case to be his um, vice presidential candidate. Um, And so, you know, we'll see what we're going to hear over the next couple of days. And when are we expecting Trump uh, to address the conference? And what is he likely to say? 
Trump himself is, is set to speak on Saturday, um, which is also um, primary day in South Carolina. Um, and, and he will probably just continue to make the case that, um, you know, this primary is over. Um, Nikki Haley, the only remaining rival, um, should finally, you know, concede um, and, and, you know, make his case um, about that the Biden administration is not handling border security, that um, migration is a problem for this country. You know, um, there's also some expectation because uh, CPAC um, has always been, you know, has a strong evangelical um, attendance that he might, you know, say something about his plans for, um, you know, maybe codifying abortion. Um, and, and so the, those are the expectations, really. Um, but I think the first couple of days is also, once again, you mentioned a couple of names who might make the case, you know, to, to be his running mate. I just want to pick up on one point there before we talk about the running mate issue. Abortion, uh, particularly with the kind of evangelical base, is such a key issue. He's trying to simultaneously campaign and say, I'm the person that got rid of Roe v. Wade for you and is allowing this massive change of laws around the country. But at the same time, he's been saying he wants a 16-week ban and, and thinks that the polls show that, you know, that the Republicans are getting punished on all kinds of races for their position on abortion because the vast majority of Americans want legal and safe abortion. So how is he going to thread this needle, do you think? I mean, I, I think, you know, depending how you want to look at it, we're still in primary mode. So I think, you know, the... The, the whole tough on 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 abortion um, works with with his base. Um, you know, I don't know if you you aware, but just um, um, earlier this week, um, uh, the Alabama Supreme Court actually, you know, did a, had an interesting ruling where it gave um, frozen embryos basically the same rights as 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 children. And so, you know, we continue and we see, as you mentioned, that abortion um, has been a losing subject so far for Republicans. So I think he tries to to really find a balance between, you know, um, being tough on it and and really attracting to or, or speaking to his base while also preparing for the general election, um, which obviously has also, you know, Democrats and independents voting in it. And I think, you know, um, pointing to the 16 16 weeks that is out there, um, I, I think, you know, that might be a good middle ground for him, or at least his campaign sees it as a good middle ground to to not be too tough, but also tough enough to not lose any even evangelical votes. And turning to the VP straw poll, who's in contention? And is there any sign at all at CPAC of much support for Nikki Haley? Oh, there's maybe let's start there. Um, there's absolutely no support. I mean, she wasn't even invited um, last year at CPAC. She was booed um, pretty much off the stage. Um, and and in terms of, of running mates, you named a couple of, of names. Um, you know, Christy Nome, the governor of South Dakota, has been thrown out there. Um, uh, Elise Stefanik, um, who is a congressman, uh, congresswoman from New York, um, and and a leader in in the House. Um, she's been almost campaigning for this job. Um, so those are definitely two names. And um, Trump himself um, earlier this week did a town hall um, and he pointed strongly to to uh, South Carolina Senator uh, Tim Scott, who was initially running in this presidential primary, but dropped out early on. Mm. Uh, and is there any reaction there to his daughter-in-law, Lara Trump, uh, who's vying to be the RNC chair, suggesting that the party should pick up Trump's now half a billion dollars uh, in legal fines. I, I think what what Laura said um, is is really interesting, and and I think she's not wrong that a lot of his base would probably agree um, that the party should step in there. 
Um, but but you know, in terms of of um, election laws here and and especially campaign finance laws, um, it seems very unlikely and just not possible at the moment. Um, but I think his base would be absolutely for that to use that money, um, you know, that they donate to to cover his legal fees. Uh, and finally, uh, Liz Truss and Nigel Farage uh, had crossed the pond to address an international summit on Wednesday. Liz Truss sort of going down the rabbit hole, claiming it was a deep state that undid her, even though it was the free markets, really, that she claims to love so much. Did she get much of a, a sort of a following there? Yeah, I mean, she, she really hit home. You know, I mean, she knew her attendance or her, her audience at this event. And, um, you know, she really, you know, hammered home this whole deep state, um, you know, conspiracy theory that is also, you know, very much in, in line with the MAGA movement. Um, so, yeah, she definitely got traction. Um, you know, this is definitely something that we will hear over the next couple of days. Um, and so I think, you know, she just, you know, played to, to the right audience when, when she, you know, brought up those issues. Hey, Shay Mai, thank you. You're listening to Monocle Radio. This is The Briefing with me, Vincent McAvinney, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in a very wet London today. Now, in November, the Netherlands became the latest European country to turn to the far right. Anti-EU populist Hurt Wilders' Freedom Party secured the most parliamentary seats in a national election. They also openly campaigned against legislation that addresses climate change and promised in their manifesto to stop, quote, wasting billions on useless climate hobbies. Perhaps surprisingly, one of the leading voices speaking out against Wilders' climate stance in the Netherlands is the former Defence Chief General Tom Middendorp. The retired Royal Netherlands Army General warns that climate change risks creating more insecurity, more conflict and more migration as a result. Monocle's Andrew Muller caught up with the General at the Munich Security Conference last week and asked him first how prepared Europe is now for a conflict with Russia. I think we have a way to go, uh, because if you look at the European defense, it's very fragmented. If you look at the enormous diversity of material, it's not very interoperable. We have dozens of, of different vehicles, different tanks, different fighter planes, etc. On contrary to the, to the US, where there is much more consolidation, uh, which makes interoperability much easier for countries to cooperate and exchange material, use the same ammunition, use the same spare parts, etc. And, and so Europe is, is very fragmented, uh, which makes it harder. And we don't have all the capabilities, for instance, space capabilities that the US has. Eh? Mm. So in, in some senses, we are still dependent upon uh, cooperation with the US. Well, what do you attribute that lack of interoperability too because people have known that this is an issue for a long time is it just that despite the fact that i know the eu is not a defensive alliance but nato is supposed to be but is there still that thing where individual countries are still a bit suspicious of their neighbors and a, a bit jealous of their own industries and their own peculiarities and their own fiefdoms 
Well, that's part of it, yeah. Uh, they are quite uh, protective for their own mm. industry, so uh, countries often uh, order uh, material from their own industries, uh, but there are also national authorities. Uh, you have national air authorities, national medical authorities, and they all have their own national regulations that are being put into the requirements of new material. Uh, which makes them more diverse. Uh, you see that also in the area of mobility, for instance. Uh, to move from the Netherlands, uh, U.S. forces through the Netherlands, through Germany, through Poland, to the Baltics is a big challenge uh, because they all have different regulations. You need mm. different uh, licenses to do so. And it, it takes a long time to get that arranged. Uh, we used to have good arrangements in the Cold War period, but we got lots of them. Uh, so we, we kind of grew apart on that area. Well, I, I do want to move on to your book, uh, The Climate General, and there is now an English and French version available for our English and French reading listeners. It will come, I think, as a bit of a jolt to a lot of people, the idea that a, a, a former military man should be, have got so invested in the idea yeah. uh, of climate. But the book makes clear that you learnt quite a lot from serving and travelling overseas about the link between climate yeah. and, and conflict. Was was there a particular point where you started to see that link for real, that it, that it really properly occurred to you, actually, there is a relationship here? Yeah. Well, it's not that I've become a climate activist, but, but I've been involved in more than 20 missions all over the world. Mm. And increasingly, I, I realize that climate change is, be, is becoming a, a major driver behind a lot of uncertainty in the world. And the first time that I realized that was in Afghanistan. I was a task force commander of a multinational task force in the south. We had been fighting all over the country. We had been fighting in one village specifically for days to free it of the Taliban, which was very hard to do. But in the end, we cleared the village, but only to find out that there were still a lot of tensions in those villages remaining. And it took a while before we realized that these tensions were all about water scarcity. Mm. And they are all farmers. They need water. They couldn't agree on the division of water, on the management of it. So we uh, negotiated a solution. And once we had that solution in place, then it became stable. And from that moment on, the Taliban could not return anymore because they used the friction. They used the friction to gain leverage over the population. Uh, and, and that's where I realized that we are often also as militaries involved in crisis when it's too late and then you are fighting the symptoms mm. of a deeper problem. And that deeper problem is very much connected more and more with a changing climate, with the increasing droughts. What I see happening on, on a global level is that we are facing an increasing gap between demand and supply. Uh, we have a growing world population, we have scarcity in resources, and we have climate change which reduces the livable and arable space in the world. And that gives friction. That gives competition between power blocks in the world. Uh, so on a global scale, I expect more insecurity, uh, also driven by climate change. Do you get the sense that this is starting to register with, with militaries and governments and indeed supranational organizations like Increasingly. NATO? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I lead a global network called the IMCCS, International Military Council on Climate and Security. And we have experts from more than 40 countries in all continents. And these are leaders in the security sector, and they share that same concern. They all see it happening in their own countries, in their own regions. And it's now becoming more and more accepted. NATO has just two years ago announced that they want to be world leading on climate and security, on the nexus, because they also recognize it as a game changer. 
Uh, and, and they want to get, build uh, knowledge on it and they want to be able to adapt to it. Uh, and, and I also see countries now adapting. The U.S. is very far ahead under the Biden administration. They have far-reaching uh, mitigation and adaptation strategies also within the military, uh, but also in other departments. They look at it very holistically. But the military intel services have been warning us for the impacts of climate change for two decades. Uh, so it's not very new. <laughs> General Tom Middendorp there speaking to Monocle's Andrew Muller. General Middendorp's book, The Climate General, is now available in English and French. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. Time now to get the latest business headlines with Bloomberg's Ewan Potts, who joins us from Dubai. Ewan, investors are very excited about a chip maker today. What's behind all the hype? Yeah, there were two big business stories in the diary for today. I know you follow these things, Vincent. There was the minutes from the US Federal Reserve. What Jay Powell says is always always of interest to investors. He's probably the most important person in the world when it comes to markets. And there were earnings from chipmaker NVIDIA. Well, in the end, nobody cared about the Federal Reserve's minutes. It's all about a company called NVIDIA. Now, the company reported stellar earnings, not just for the last quarter, but also for the current quarter, uh, analysts were expecting revenue of $22 billion. The company said it was going to take about $24 billion in sales. Now, the stock is up 13% in pre-trade in New York today. It's actually doubled in value since last May. You remember that all big tech names have been flagging artificial intelligence spending uh, in their earnings uh, forecasts, in their earnings stories, uh, not just uh, Meta, the owner of Instagram and Facebook, but Google's parent company, Alphabet, Microsoft, they're all at it. There's a lot of hype around AI at the moment. And there's an old saying that in a gold rush, you want to be the company selling the shovels. Well, NVIDIA is the shovel maker in the AI boom. It used to be a sleepy but profitable maker of video chips for gaming PCs, but now it's carved out a really good niche in making chips for artificial intelligence, and it can't sell enough of them. In fact, the main risk that it flagged in its earnings today uh, was that uh, it had problems with supply. It can't actually make enough of these things. There's no problem uh, with demand. And it is a very big company. Since that stock rise, it's now the fifth most valuable company in the world. It's obviously got a product that lots of companies want. Uh, you mentioned it's struggling with supply. But I mean, that valuation, you know, 13% up this morning pre-trading, it might carry on through the day. Is it sort of entering no meme stock territory, the likes of which we've seen from, you know, Tesla a few years ago, where the stock price gets a bit disconnected from the actual fundamentals? Well, it's certainly uh, a very expensive stock, but investors are excited by the prospects. They think this boom is going to go on for some time. Whether the valuations are justified is a, an altogether more difficult question. Markets more generally have been setting a lot of records recently, and it, and it isn't entirely tech-driven, but it is mostly tech-driven. Uh, we've seen the S&P in America hitting new records. The Nikkei 225 uh, just today in Japan finally topped the 1989 high. It's been a pretty uh, rotten few decades for Japanese investors, even the stock 600 in Europe today hitting a record early this morning. Uh, investors with long memories will notice a bit of an echo of the dot-com boom in the run-up to the year 2000. Uh, and certainly it's good to exercise caution when we have these uh, big run-ups in stock values. But there is a big difference this time. When the internet was first a thing, very, very few of the companies which were listed were making any money. Now, if you picked an obscure online 
uh, e-store selling books, never going to take off, called Amazon. Well, you'd be pretty happy now. Mm. But there are dozens, hundreds of duds uh, littering uh, the road going back to the early days of the internet. And the difference this time is that these companies are, most of them are very, very profitable. Meta, Microsoft and Apple they all make a ton of money. Whether those lofty valuations are justified, well, that is something uh, you probably need to exercise a bit of caution with. Ewan Potts, thank you very much. Well, that sound means one thing. It's time for the Global Countdown with our senior correspondent and music curator, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, who is with me now in the studio. And Fernando, we're not going to a country this week. We're going to do something else. Absolutely. Let's, I, I decided to spice it up a little bit. So we're looking at some of the top music biopics out there. And the reason for it, Vini, it, it's pretty obvious. I mean, this is the week where it's been confirmed there'll be four films based on the Beatles. I think each film will be... Four too many, to my book. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps indeed. But you know what? One thing I can tell you, it will do well at the box office. Mm-hmm. Ridley Scott might do a film uh, about the Bee Gees. There's upcoming films about Michael Jackson, about Amy Winehouse. The studios, they are counting on those films mm. some i read an article this morning saying that musicians are the new multiverse who and cares about marvel we care about musicians exactly and i mean it's win-win for the companies because also for the record companies it means that the music is getting played more new fans they get the rights from the songs being in the movies as well the royalties so it's big business isn't it absolutely and of course we start at number five with bob marley one love which is just out now in the cinemas it overperformed at the box office you know people thought it would do well but not as well as it's it's doing right now Mm -hmm. i mean unsurprisingly perhaps it's already one of the biggest films in jamaica ever Mm. Uh, i mean he is an icon in the country and that just shows the appetite we have for music biopics shall we have a clip of the film Mm -hmm. won't you help to sing these songs of freedom is all i ever have Redemption songs. When you write that? All my life. Now, we've just been discussing their favourite. We're trying to work out if it's an old recording of Bob Marley or if it's the actor, because that is a key choice that you make when it comes to this film. With the Whitney Houston one a few years ago, they just took her old audio because they thought no singer could match it. I, I have a feeling it's the actor, but, you know, I am not 100% sure. I will investigate for you, Vinny. But one thing people, the critics are loving about the film, well, they didn't perhaps, all of the, all the, all the critics, perhaps they didn't love the film, but the accent, uh, the actor Kingsley Ben Adir, he did so well. Mm. Uh, apparently, you know, even Jamaicans are very happy with the way, you know, the... the, the because his... they said they didn't want another cool running situation. Absolutely not. And, and I think they're safe from that. So, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so Bob Marley, another icon here at number five. Cool. Now, number four is a film that I really loved, and I'm sad to not see it further up, because I think, you know, the the musical biopic goes playing in your garage, randomly get discovered at a club, get signed with dodgy manager, bad contract, descent into addiction, comeback album, maybe you survive, or maybe you're, you're found in a hotel room and it's all, you know, very sad. Um this movie, Rocket Man, Elton John, they just thought, let's not tell it linearly, let's turn it into a proper musical. And I think it's great. I agree with you. I think it's a little bit underrated, although it did very well as well at the box office. I think Taron Egerton 
played Elton so well, and I think so a, well. And it was, and he learned piano, and the way he performed, it was amazing. And it's a t- challenge performing someone that's still alive. Mm. Of course, Bob Marley's dead now, but I think. And Elton John commented of the film. He actually said, "I think he liked the film." He said, "You know, I didn't let a PG thirteen life, so he's happy that the film takes some risks. Yeah, there were some sex scenes. That's why the film has been, uh, you know, banned in a few countries mm-hmm. as well. So yeah, we're both fans of Rocket Man. We have a clip of it as well." How much pressure I'm under? Not really. I'll still be collecting my 20% long after you've killed yourself. Great film there. Yeah, and we heard the dodgy <laughs> manager there, didn't we, with that threat. And it was Taron Egerton actually saying himself there, and it wasn't kind of an exact Elton impression, but it was sort of beautiful singing throughout. It worked, it worked. Mm-hmm. Uh, number three, perhaps, is the musician that I knew the least before I watched the film, but what a surprise. And Michael Douglas, I think, is one of the best roles in his career. Mm. He's behind the Candelabra, which is actually was a film made for TV uh, originally, and Matt Damon's in there. It's very camp, because Liberace I mean, the famous piano. I mean, he is. It wasn't going to be low-key, was it? It's not going to be low-key. But again, the film took risks. It's funny. It shows his addiction to plastic surgery, to jewellery as well. And I think it was quite brave for Michael Douglas to do it. And I think... Have you you seen Behind the I have, yeah. And also, of course, you know, he lived a very closeted life. But Mm. this film is sort of no holes bars on his relationships and kind of sex addiction as Mm. well. Excellent film. Let's have a, a clip of the trailer. Mr. Liberace. Wow. This is my friend Scott Thorson. His first time in Las Vegas. You are incredible out there. Well, this must be fate. I have a great idea. Why don't you come work for me? As what? I need a companion. I love it. I, it actually makes me want to watch it again. Yeah, it's um, been a few years since I saw it. Yes. It was, yeah, a great film. Now, number two, I had to actually look up because this isn't one I'm aware of at all, but you've ranked it pretty highly. I mean, because I love this film. And we're going back in time in many ways here because the film is from 1984. Uh, and, well, and the musician uh, is, is Mozart, basically, mm-hmm. a few centuries ago. Uh, this film actually won eight Oscars. I think F. F. Murray Abraham, uh, he did an excellent job uh, as, as Mozart. Of course, the film is fictionalized. Perhaps you shouldn't trust everything everything you see in a music mm. biopic. Uh, and this is a very special year for Amadeus uh, because Sky is doing a series based on the film because the film is celebrating 40 years since its release. So, you know, it is time for kind of a, an Amadeus renaissance and mm. I'm all for it. We have a clip of it as well. How good is he, this Mozart? He's remarkable. He's an unprincipled, spoiled, conceited brat. I'm a vulgar man. But I assure you, my music is not. He is divinely inspired. He is arrogant, vulgar, obscene. He creates music for the gods. He is passionate. He burns with fire. He is an angel. He is a devil. He claimed he'd been poisoned. From Mozart to Bob Marley, we're very open-minded. I mean, did you see what I mean? Music biopics, they can be from... Any type of artist, as long as, they, mm. as long as they led an interesting life. Now, your number one is an interesting choice, because I was thinking about music biopics that I've enjoyed, and the one that I think sadly misses your list is the Baz Luhrmann Elvis, which I thought was a really good return to form, and the Austin Butler performance was so 
kind of encapsulating. And uh, I, when I was in the cinema, it was one of the sort of first films I got back to the cinema to see. And it just made you want to get up and kind of, I never, my vision of Elvis was always how you see him in death, the sort of old, haggard, bad Elvis. Um, whereas this showed you like what he was really like. Uh, but that hasn't sadly made your list. I would have put it in there somewhere, but you've gone for number one. I'm a fan of Elvis, by the way, as well. Maybe I'll do a second special Global Countdown <laughs> on music biopics, but number one, I love this film from 1993. It's about the iconic uh, Tina Turner. And the reason why I picked up this film, because I think Angela Bassett, who performed Tina Turner, I mean, she encapsulated... Tina so well. I think it was quite magical to see. I mean, she was nominated for Best Actress. I think she deserved the award that year. Uh, and I, I don't know, even Tina Turner might agree with me because she said she not only imitated me, but she went deep in her soul to perform me. Uh, and, and I think that's brilliant. It's a beautiful film based on Tina's autobiography. Let's have a listen to a clip of What's Love Got to Do With It? Not me. You want nothing without me, and you ain't gonna be nothing without me. I'll give it all up. Just release the claim on my name. Means you're gonna walk out of here with absolutely nothing. Except my name. Touchstone Pictures presents the story of a remarkable woman who refused to give up. I'm ready. I'm ready, and I know what I want. Oh, I, I love that it. old trailer voiceover. Why did you bring that back? <laughs> why so did you? I love it as well. To be honest, that's why I chose this exact clip because oh, I, okay. I, I agree with you. But you know what? If no one has seen this film, please go and watch it. I think it's an excellent. Because uh, I didn't realize when she passed away, I was like, oh, I'm surprised no one's ever made a biopic about her. And then in one of the obit packages, I saw clips of this. And I was like, oh, I've never even heard of this. So I definitely, yeah, I will be checking <laughs> that out. Hopefully, it's on one kind of stream or another. It was a great tribute performance as well recently at the Grammys by Fantasia, the singer and actress who's in the musical version of The Colour Purple. She did a really good tribute to Tina Turner. Uh, well, Fernando, thank you very much. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Lillian Fawcett and Chris Chermack. Our researcher was Neoma Ekwe, and our studio manager was Steph Chungu. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Goodbye, and thank you for listening. <laughs>